0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke and I'm Jay, and you're listening to the Massage Show podcast, episode number
1: ninety-two. Ninety-two. No. I, I'm trying not to laugh right now, Zeke. Yeah, why? Yeah, I'm, is that the first time ever you're like, "How's it going, guys?" I'm Zeke, and I'm like, and I'm not recording.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> it really has gotten to that point where it just feels like a like a bite like a i'm bite. just what i'm like like what i'm saying is just a sound bite.
1: Oh, i thought you meant like a bite out of a burger. Like I, like, I almost feel so like i could
0: pre-record myself saying that phrase. <laughs> just the did intro? We,
1: we've made that joke before. Have we? That we could like recreate an episode just out of previous sound bites <laughs> and see if anyone notices. <laughs> <That'd be really laughs> we, we did that with James once, very early on. Yes, yes. But, um, the elusive that's, James. That's okay.
0: We'll wait. We'll get him one day. No worries. <laughs> Jake Yes, that's speaking me. of '92. Are you ready to guess your quote from 1992?
1: I am. Well, I'm not, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Hit, hit I've me got.
0: Up. I've got two for you.
1: Oh, okay. We're mixing it up a little
0: bit. But one, like, if you don't get the first one, I'm gonna give you a saving, uh, saving grace
1: one. To be, I haven't seen a lot of 1992
0: films, so this well, this might be interesting. I'm hoping you've seen this one and i'm hoping that i've not shot you in the foot here
1: no so i i kind of if if i i kind of want the challenge of getting one of a film i haven't seen before because i okay. feel like i can
0: okay are you going to bark all day little doggy or are you gonna bite
1: oh shit oh, i authentically have no idea i oh want to my... guess though okay I, what, i'm trying to figure what came out in 92 now with that which is funny because one of the films I watched earlier today is a 1992 film,
0: and I was almost going to do that film.
1: Oh, but you're like, nah, Jake just watched it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. Oh, is this a Batman film?
0: Is, is it? that your final answer?
1: Oh my god, is it? Oh, which Batman is? It? Is, is it the Penguin one? Which one is that? Batman, f- something returns. Batman returns. Is that it?
0: It is not Batman returns. Ah. Oh. Would you like me to give you the second quote to see if you can redeem it?
1: Was it a Batman film, though? No. Oh, okay. Never mind. I feel like the penguin said that also. Which doesn't make sense, because bats are not a dog. A bat's a bat.
0: Okay, this is an exchange between three different people. (laughs) okay. So the first guy goes, Yeah, she was nice, but she wasn't anything special. The second person says, What's special? Taking you back and sucking your dick? (laughs) Third guy goes... I'd go 12% for that.
1: (laughs) What the (laughs) fuck? I don't know. (laughs) Wait.
0: It's followed up by, hey, who didn't throw in Mr. Pink?
1: Oh, Reservoir Dogs. Yes, it is. Reservoir Dogs.
0: I'm going to give it to you. Thank you. Yeah. So the racy dialogue is obviously from... Quentin Tarantino's first feature film Reservoir Dogs who came out in 1992
1: how'd I forget that was 1982
0: and it was my f- it's still my favourite Tarantino film so damn alright there we go let's move into what well, we've seen in what the what was
1: one. the first quote or are those both from the uh, same Mr film?
0: Blonde when he's talking to the cop
1: ok so those are, that's all from Tarantino yeah it was oh, all Reservoir Dogs ok
0: sweet but the intro scene is synonymous for when they are talking about tipping very nice you're right you're right um, very nice and it's a kind of an intro to the racy dialogue that Tarantino has in his films, um, in Gosh. which you have seen all of them.
1: I've I've seen every Tarantino film.
0: So and I forgot the quote. <laughs> that's okay. It's not really up there on your favourites, though.
1: No, nah, it's not one of my favourites. It's gra- It's a great film. It's a great directorial debut. But mm. I've only seen it once. Okay, we'll do it one day. We'll do. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'll do a podcast. Yes, one in
0: day. terms of cinema sideshow, it did go up against, I think went on a Pop poll fiction. for a, um, yeah, a director's corner.
1: Yeah. Way back. In like... Like mid-last year.
0: Yeah. Um, sure. Okay. Well, what have you seen in the last week, Jake?
1: Um, I haven't seen a lot.
0: I think uh, we've... It's already both... more than me. <laughs> I
1: think, I, I'm going to say, I think we actually have way more to talk about in the career section collectively mm-hmm. uh, this week, as opposed to films of, films that we've watched. I've watched two, though. So the film I watched this morning, I was alluding to, 1992, A Few Good Men. So uh, this is related mm. to our film of the week because it is Aaron Sorkin's first feature film that he wrote mm-hmm. uh, based on a play that he also wrote. So mm-hmm. he very much was an up-and-coming writer at the time. Uh, classic Rob Reiner film. And we did a Rob Reiner Director's Corner not that long ago. That we did. Um, was it episode 85? Yes, it was. Yeah, beautiful. And I, yeah, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I think it's funny because the relevance is also from the fact that this is also a legal courtroom drama much like the film of the week that we're about to do yeah and you have tom cruise and jack nooks i think that, that's a great cast and i know at this point rob reiner like he had already made the majority of like huge films mm-hmm. so i mean, with the cast and the director everyone was sort of like oh this is going to be a great film and then they're watching like oh my god the writing is, is spectacular and what mm-hmm. i love about the way this one was written it's it's beautifully rhythmic just like these other films in terms of the dialogue and the back and forth that you can't handle the truth all that, But I like that it wasn't self-aware yet. Yes. I feel like Aaron Sorkin's a little self-aware at this point because his writing went on to like basically become a bunch of conventions that we know. Oh, the walk and talk is sort of something that was made around his scripts mm-hmm. and, and he's become a bit of a character. He goes on Conan and he can't, he's like a guest star on TV shows and it, people are very meta about it. So it was nice to see his very early work and compare and contrast it to his more recent... Uh, more meta-filled courtroom dramas. Mm. Which
0: uh, we'll be addressing a little later in the show.
1: That's the one. And the other film I watched, uh, this was in the cinema, in the cinema, as it says. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is a film called Adam, which uh, comes from Morocco. It was directed by, I hope I pronounced this correctly, -um, Mayam Tuzani, who uh, I thought she did a wonderful job with this film. I think it's the closest we're going to get to A Portrait of a Lady on Fire in 2020. Uh, Which is ironic, I say that, because it it was submitted as part of the best international film of the Oscars last Mm -hmm. year. So it ultimately lost two, uh, no, sorry, it lost to Parasite, but um, it was sort of in the same, in terms of the release year, it came out around the same time. But but this is a film about uh, essentially two mothers. There's a pregnant runaway woman named Samia, who is, you know, she's worried that her family's going to find out she's pregnant out of wedlock. She's sort of door-knocking, trying to find work, and she ends up sort of staying in with this other mother to a 10-year-old daughter uh, named Abla, who is very cold and reserved. And the whole film's sort of this character piece uh, where they sort of open up a bit more about their troubles. And that's why I compare it to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It just feels like a great sort of piece about <clears throat> like women, really. And it's sort of done in this like small-town African... Sort of setting, and I, I just, I thought it was really well done. I, I wouldn't say it's as good <laughs> as *Portrait of a Lady of Fire*. I wouldn't go that far, but it, it's very well made, and um, it was very sweet, very sweet film.
0: Hmm, nice. It's Unfortunately, fun. Jake, this is although I made a pretty strong comeback in the last few weeks sure, in terms yeah. of uh, films I've watched. Uh, I've only watched the film of the week. That's alright. Um, but I guess this, uh, I've also technically not the only thing I've watched. Um, I have done my annual re-watching of uh, mm. Band of Brothers. Very nice. Um, That's an annual thing for you. It is an annual thing. Okay. I watch it every year. I watch both uh, Band of Brothers and The Pacific now. Nice. Um, yeah, yearly. I walked in
1: your room and I saw The Pacific just like laid out. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out and you were like, yes, Jake, I'm very specific about my workflow." I'm like, you... That's not what I said. <laughs> um,
0: and yes, yeah. So I also watch. I'm now into the Pacific. Halfway through my rewatch of the Pacific, because nice. they are two particularly. Band of Brothers is one of, if not my favorite HBO miniseries. Now I haven't seen Chernobyl, but I find mm, you gotta watch. Chernobyl. I, I've got it sitting on my shelf, but uh, haven't got around to it yet. Bruh. Um, and I'm sure I will really enjoy it, but I, mm. there's sort of a place in my heart for Band of Brothers and they have actually, it actually does have related news, uh, during the week, they announced that they are doing another sequel show, another okay. HBO miniseries to, so they said the sequel to Band of Brothers, but I'm having a feeling that it's going to be another band, specific, of, band
1: of sisters,
0: um, the female
1: spinoff. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. Jake. <laughs> I think it's Sorry. going to be a third sequential uh, war uh, okay. miniseries um, in the same sort of vein as the other two. So um, I think The Pacific wasn't as well received as Band of Brothers, but Band of Brothers has like near-perfect scores and stuff like that. So Right. So it's, they it's both got very compare. high praise, but yeah. most people would say that Band of Brothers was the best. Maybe because it has the... Real pieced cameras from the survivors. Um, Interesting. Okay. um, So that's another element that that has that uh, Pacific doesn't have because by the time they'd got to the Pacific, most of the World War Two veterans have passed on. Yeah. So there wasn't really any sort of footage for that. Whereas when Band of Brothers came out, that was the mid nineties. So a lot of them were quite old, but uh, still alive. Some of them, at least. It's really good. Every time I watch it, every time I, I feel like every time I. this was the the quickest I'd watched it. I just burnt through it, and I was okay. I was really taken back about how easy it is to go from episode to episode. Really got a real natural binge B-
1: bingeability. Yeah. So, um, oh, Netflix are going to jump on that. So, well, it's a good point you bring that up because yeah, we don't tend to talk about things we rewatch. Mm-hmm. We usually only talk about things that we've watched for the first time. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, pointing that out. yeah,
0: and I. I have, I I do always try and push my, I have a lot of shows that I've neglected in in favor of rewatching shows that I know (laughs) I really enjoy, but sometimes, particularly when we start to talk about the career section and stuff, when you're having a really hard, uh, you know, shoot, a little tease for what's about, we're probably about to talk about, you don't really want to come home and watch something new. You want to watch something, you know, you're going to... Something comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a comfortable experience. Well,
1: well, comfortable in that you know what to expect.
0: I don't have to think too much. Yeah, you know. and that,
1: That's a real psychological thing is like mm. watching something new, you have to prepare for it. Even if it's like, Oh, I'm fine. If it's subtitled, I'm fine. If it's black, I'm fine. It's like not even anything to do with that. It's just watching a show that you already know how it plays out.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a comfortability to it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have anything cool. what, what you want to bridge into career?
1: Let's do it. Cause yeah. I think between the two of us, we actually got a lot to talk about some stuff separately and some stuff we've done together. Yes. Which is quite exciting. Do you want to do that first?
0: The together one? Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah, do it.
1: We'll so, uh, this past weekend was my sister's 21st birthday. Yes. Uh, so, that was fun to celebrate, but we wanted to go the extra mile a little bit. With... Now, see, now I sound like my own character from the video. <laughs> 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 we wanted, it's true. You know, we wanted to go the extra mile and do like a little, because her favourite shows the office, and I've talked about it on this show, that we're, between me, her, and uh, my mum, were all sort of collectively watching it every weekend, and we're towards the end of season six now, we're sort of itching along slowly, but... Mm-hmm. I wanted to do a little office recreation as part of the video that we show to everyone at the party. So, last Monday, because we filmed our podcast early last week. We did. So, last Monday, um, the episode was already up. Uh, We banded together to create this scene.
0: We did. We did. Yeah. Um, This is how time has been so distorted. I, like can't even comprehend what day of the week when we did that, but I guess it, it was actually the same day, which is kind of crazy. Well, it like, was a week ago
1: now, because even the time we're recording this, we yeah. will probably wrapping at that point? Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was just a fun little uh, skit thing. Nothing too... Uh, crazy. Or... Yeah. yeah. And it ended up... I mean, you just showed it to me before mm. the show, and you showed yep. me the reactions to it, and it got a very <laughs> warm, fun parody reception.
1: Yeah, like, all the laughs came in when you sort of expected. And, yeah. Because that was the thing, like, one of the cuts that was so important when we shot it was it starts off with me presenting in front of a TV and then it cuts to a couple of my sister's friends, which is a surprise. Yeah. She has no idea her friends are involved or, like, that I'm even in close relation with them at all. sort mm-hmm. of the thing. So the fact that that gets the reaction you expected that yeah. everyone's, like, laughing, but they're like, oh, my God, like, these, all these people are involved. And you're right, it's a bit of a meta thing, so... I doubt we're ever going to, like, put it somewhere. No. Because it's, like, an internal family thing. Like, 90% of the jokes won't land with yes, just anyone. Course. But um, I appreciate you helping me out with that one, Zach. No, it was a bit of fun. It was but, been yeah. a bit of fun.
0: It was a very cruisy. Uh, the funniest thing that I think came out of that whole little mm. mini shoot was oh, you left no. your laptop. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew we were going with that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, we were reading a script from another film that someone right. has been pitching towards yeah. us, and... Um I don't know what led to us when we were about to relocate to the shoot location but well, you we're left sort of your, running late. Yeah, you yeah. left your laptop on <laughs> at the restaurant in which we were reading. Which um, is funny
1: because not we weren't only reading the script but I was writing the script for what we were about to shoot. Yeah, because <laughs> Basically, the 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 two friends that we were filming with, they were like, "Jake, can you at least send us a rough script so we know what to say?" Mm-hmm. So I was sort of typing it while simultaneously reading out loud to you this other script, which is weird because that all involves using my laptop, and then I just forgot my laptop.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so and we drove
0: back, and it was just still sitting there, sitting there, there. outside so, in the front of the, the shop. What can you do? <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was a really it was a nice little bit of fun. Yeah. Um. On a more uh, serious note, um, Mm, at least from a professional standpoint, on an actual production, I have just... The reason this episode's coming out quite late for us, still going to hit the Monday, but... As um, always, as always. As always, but um, is I wrapped uh, principal photography on a documentary. Very nice. A short documentary I'm working on. So... um, So when,
1: when did you start shooting
0: saturday so it's a three-day show
1: so you, yeah you just smashed it all out in three days yeah
0: yeah we had um four really quite lengthy excuse me uh, interviews mm. um in which we just pumped out and a lot of the b-roll was correlative to the, the shooting locations where the interviews were so we kind of knocked a lot of that out on uh to what the director who is uh cassie power mm. um What to what she wanted, and uh, yeah, we knocked it out. It was a really good crew, really good attitudes, um, and it was a really, really all round enriching and enriching experience. And just okay, um, which is really great to walk away from something and be like, yeah, this is a this. Everyone was a consummate professional from post to post, and. Mm. Um, The product we're working on, it's a documentary centered around, I'm sure uh, addressed when we were doing the the short film a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. That's going to... You might have
1: teased that it was a doco.
0: There was another doco that correlates. They're both based around brain aneurysms. Obviously, one's way more about the practicalness, whereas the other one's the more dramatized version. Mm. Um, So this one, yeah, basically is talking about and focusing on the survivors and those people that have lost... Uh, significant people in their life to brain aneurysms and sort of addressing mm. what exactly they are to give people a basic understanding. So it's sort of kind of an educational documentary, mm. but also got that real grounded realism to it and uh real personal touch, particularly for the, the director. Um, well, it
1: sounds like when you say it's enriching, it sounds like part of it is just because of the content you're exploring. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's... Uh, and I, I've recently, in the last couple of weeks, especially just... Um, put a lot of uh, extra side finances back into sort of equipment investment. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's always nice to bring a lot of that to set and be able to provide your contribution to it, whether it's your equipment or your your knowledge and, and having a group of people that are willing to uh, be able to express ideas around each other, but also kind of feel comfortable in those Mm -hmm. ideas and not feel like they're going to be dejected for suggesting something and, just that it's nice to, it was nice to be on a set that was professional from start to finish mm. and um and then just knowledgeable like everyone actually practically using their knowledge the right way which
1: for good for, <laughs> not for, <laughs> not for evil. I mean we've
0: talked about it we've tiptoed around it but you know for the most part <laughs> you know student student films in our time at university Jake right. were met with mixed levels of professionalism yeah um, well,
1: I, the way I always phrase it is like, by the time you're in third year, it's shocking how few people in third year act like they're in third year. Yeah.
0: Third, final year, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: As in terms of like, just lack of knowledge on basic filmmaking mm.
0: skills. And I've always yeah. attested that the obviously the way that they structure that curriculum is kind of a lottery with the, the group you get right. assigned. In terms um, of who gets um, what you can have a and... little bit of control, but unless you've got a click that's the size of well, six people, Mm. generally, four to six people, then you don't really have that much luck. I mean, because the chances are that, unfortunately, just based by where we went to film school, at least, there was always, you know, there were people that weren't really there for the right reasons. And that's a shame because it takes away from the people that were there for the right reasons because they have to do more than just the job that they're being graded on. Yeah.
1: Well, that that just comes from, and again, this is the higher sort of system of it all, is you have these tutors who, and this is more so in high school than, than uni level, mm-hmm. but you get teachers and tutors who are rewarded for passing everyone, which means that when you get through first year, you expect a certain amount of people to be weeded out. Yes. People who realize very quickly, oh, this isn't my interest. I don't want to make films. This is way harder than I just made mm-hmm. it all. This is where my interest lies. There's a lot less weeding out of those people because it is, frankly, I don't want to say it's too easy to get through, but I think that there is a lot of pressure to just pass people who aren't well, deserving uh, of I a mean, pass. You,
0: not to get too, um, we don't really need to get into a big debate about it, but the, mm. the, the, the black and white of it is universities are there to make money. Yeah. And tertiary, most tertiary education facilities are. And sometimes the monetary gain from people going through the system for longer mm. is more beneficial than that. comes at a compromise for the you know, quality control sort yeah. of situation.
1: It sort of stems from, this is a weird tangent, but it is relevant in the sense that mm. um, I just got charged a fee from Squarespace. That I assumed was for my website. I was like, that's a bit early. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was actually for a website I created for an assignment a year ago. And I forgot to turn the auto renewal off. And I know it's kind of silly, but it's like my instinct was to just not even just accept mm-hmm. the $44 fee and just be like, oh, well, that, that's a loss. Because this is how most websites make their money, is people forgetting to turn the auto renewal mm-hmm. off. And you can definitely translate that to a university Absolutely. in terms of students just passing through all these un- yeah, yeah. units and years. and yeah. But
0: in, in terms of this production, like everyone was <laughs> just... <it> back. <laughs> (laughs) yeah in terms of this production we were on from start to finish everyone consummate professional Mm. uh knowledgeable it was really that was a part of that enriching experience obviously the content and the stories that we managed to cover were deeply personal yeah uh, for some and then very uh influential and intellectual on others so that was really cool that was really cool to Um, who have recently acquired a lot of this equipment, seeing it in action and, um, seeing it in action, severely improve the quality of the product overall, which is where you really start to go, holy, holy camoly, this is, this is awesome. You've really like you, like it's, I mean, I bought my, like the camera that I'm currently using a lot, Jake, we bought Mm. that together. Like you came and collected it with me over a year ago. I was the, like, I which didn't is pay the, for it. What are you talking about? Black, Black Magic <laughs> Pocket Cinema, and f- up until recently, it hadn't really been put through the the ringer. Whereas, right. but in this last month, it's really started to justify, like, find footing well, with it. Even mm-hmm.
1: just the, the the new gear that you've been buying the last few weeks, and and being able to put it all. Because even like when we did our office skit, I specifically said, oh, don't bother bringing any of it, because it was like just a very small thing. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to put together quickly. But for this now, you all the money you're spending, you're literally seeing it on the screen. That yeah. that term people use, like, put the money on the screen, you, you see what that means now because you're using all this gear. And it's really valuable because mm. it
0: gives, it allow, you know, you mix it in with the stuff that you're eligible to have at uni, then you really do have this army of of, of equipment. And yeah. if everyone learns how to use their bits and bobs the right way, then it, it puts together this real professional feeling product and that's that's the best part it all comes together which is nice it's and i think yeah it's going to turn i'm the editor technically on it so now we switch your job's
1: not finished yet sir
0: (laughs) no so that'll be the next couple of weeks of my life yeah Um, i have two more shoots (laughs) in the next consecutive weeks but i will update them on the weeks that they happen
1: cool well um i got a couple things I'll, I'll quickly throw in there. It, again, for both of us being crazy yeah. week slash weekend. Um, this is why this
0: this part of the show exists, though.
1: Yeah, exactly. Especially, like, that's... Been, I love that it's actually getting a big chunk of time this week. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about. So, there is a local film being made uh, from Scott Miadl. I think that's his surname. Picardle, I think Picardle, it is. Yep. uh He's being produced by uh, Harrison Mitchell, who's a friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a a behind-the-scenes guy on that. So they had a bit of a pre-production
0: meeting the You're other getting quite day. the BTS rap, I you? know, I'm
1: starting to specialise. <laughs> Which, hey, that's not a bad role to specialise in. No. It's a very sort of reserved role. It's like, oh, I'll just sit back and i make my own little
0: video. Mm, that's quite a role. I would say not too, uh, too stressful.
1: No, de- definitely <laughs> not as stressful as like some of the... Well, the... well, the thing is, when I was doing Raven, I was also the gaffer assistant in that. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of like, I got to film. That was the fun part. But then, like, oh, they needed me to help set up this, like, you know, 8 by 8 frame. So, it's like, ah, oh, that that's, like, the the less fun part. But it's still important because you can't make behind-the-scenes video without the film. Mm-hmm. So, you need to make sure the film gets made. Priority number mm-hmm. one. Uh, but for this one, it looks like this is just my sole well It's behind the scenes. So, I, I attended the little pre-production meeting that uh, everyone had, some of the cast and crew. And just filmed some of that prep. And it's it's cool. And I, I even watched recently, because I know Breaking Bad is a, like, two-hour documentary about the last season. I've seen it dozens of times, but I just, I rewatched it knowing that like, this is what I'm doing now. So it was cool yeah. to be like, oh, okay, this is how they captured this moment in this meeting. How did they shoot this? Um, so that was really fun. And and last but not least, uh, I actually, this was a bit of a fun one. So I actually got to do a bit of drone operation for a music video. Mm, so, there you go. Yeah. Th- so this was Friday night. Yeah, Friday. We had to wait for the sun to go down to get the shot, like at the perfect lighting uh, and they actually had a bunch of um, pyrotechnicians there, so people who knew how to do deal with fire and stuff. And I I don't because they were like, oh, um, so we're gonna we're gonna have this box here that shoots fire into the sky. We want you to fly the drone just above the fire. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, let's do it. No, I mean, I I knew what I was doing when I got there. I, they didn't surprise me with that. This
0: is this is sort of what we were talking about, even mm. just from a point of view. I mean, it, with all pieces of equipment, the fact that. You're getting such consistent access to use your drone, right? Yeah, it's just it makes you as a drone operator, It really makes you a drone operator at that point. Like, yeah, you go from guy who bought himself a drone as a oh, it's a cool nifty toy exactly, to yeah. to I'm the guy who knows how to actively use this and I'm now operating it around pyrotechnics. Like, yeah,
1: exactly. Like I'm like, actually doing this like official thing, or you know, you're right. Like playing around in, in an environment that's not just oh, I'm playing with my toy. It's like Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm actually using this in service of someone else's production. and yeah. there's some like serious things going on here. so the, you know safety warnings and all that jazz.
0: and that's what I'm talking about. It's not like we're not trying to have an instrument flex here, like oh, we've bought all these cool. Oh, I don't know, but I'm
1: flexing big time right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm here <laughs> um,
0: we're we're just trying to say that it's really cool to have those opportunities to be like, yeah, you buy this stuff and it's like really cool to have it mm. but it's re- the only way you learn to like you you like want to just use it just have for the sake of like getting better with it and yeah. getting more professional with it. So when opportunities like mm. working with that sort of pyrotechnics situation comes up, you're able to comfortably handle that situation with no stress.
1: Exactly. You put on a brave face for that thing. <laughs> I wasn't worried, but like, I was like, Oh, I hope it doesn't burn. <laughs> uh, so the band is those who dreams. I think they're on Spotify and all that sexy jazz now. So you can check them out. I think that what they're doing now, I don't want to say too much cause I don't know what the deal is, but they're working on multiple video projects right now. Um, really? So uh, that will come up at some point, I suppose.
0: That's pretty and, uh, exciting.
1: Yeah. So that, there we go, Zeke. We've
0: had pretty hefty career updates this week. It's always nice to switch it up, Jake. But I guess it's time for us to move mm. into our film of the week. But what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke,
1: we're watching the trial of the Chicago Seven.
0: We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now, but in it. The film is based on the infamous 1969 trial of the seven defendants charged by the federal government with conspiracy and more arising from the countercultural protests in the Chicago 1968 Democratic National Convention.
1: Oh, very very political, Zeke. I don't like
0: it. <laughs> this film was directed and written by Aaron Sorkin.
1: Mr. Mr. Sorkin. You've done us proud. And
0: stars, quite a mm. interesting collection of people. It's very yeah. Like uh, the uh guy,
1: my boy, Joseph got a levers back. He hasn't yes, been, he's been in very few films in the last few years.
0: Yes, he was, in, um, he was in that the Power movie. The Power movie um that came out uh earlier this year yeah. to uh, lukewarm reception. Yeah. would probably be the best way to describe it. But Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne also
1: yeah, they're great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. I uh, wanna
1: give a, I wanna give a shout out real quick as well. Um who play he plays one of the McDonald brothers in uh Michael Keaton's film. Yes. Uh yeah, Michael Keaton. I keep getting him and McKean mixed up. Uh but John Carroll Lynch, who plays David in this film. Mm. I, I like. I like seeing him in films.
0: With also a guest appearance from Michael Keaton. There you go, literally. exactly. Um, from <laughs> They're from the, the same uh, room the again. Same founder film. Um, I also like him too. I always like when he rocks up in a film. Yeah. He's in all kinds of films. He's never, I don't think he's ever been the main character in any of them, but yeah. I think Wish... he's, in, he's in private life too. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. He's the, uh, yeah. yeah, the uncle or the, 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 I think he's the friend. Yeah, he's yeah, friend. The, the friends. I'm pretty sure. He,
1: his wife is, doesn't like them. I think,
0: yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so this, this film, um, I think you've got some trivia that might be the best way to kick off uh, this conversation, I think.
1: Uh, I, f- I think, well, I have some trivia facts okay. that do lead into a nice opening. I'll get to what you're talking okay. about Okay, that's fair,
0: cool. Um, Yeah, I'm not a super familiar with, I'm familiar with Sorkin writing, but Sorkin direction, I'm not well,
1: super... Well, this is only his second film that he's ever directed. Okay. And I don't even think he directs the shows that he wrote. He obviously, he did like Westworld and
0: Newsroom. Mm-hmm. Wait,
1: West? No, that's, no, he didn't do Westworld. That's... um. I'm thinking of... uh. That's Jonathan Nolan. Yeah, I'm thinking of Nolan. Uh, He did... Yeah, he didn't use... Molly's her... Game. Molly's Game, yeah. is directorial um, debut.
0: Molly's Game was really good. Oh, okay. I, I haven't seen Molly's it yet. Game. I've sat on a three and a half for it. So oh, very nice. There we go. I quite enjoyed Molly's Game. Um, yeah. Sort of a, like a... uh, It's Jessica Chastain West and Idris... I'm thinking of West Wing, okay. sorry. <laughs> Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba. Um, And that sort of follows a... Uh, a bit of a hustle that um, a Olympic athlete or post-Olympic athlete um, does. And it's quite a good film, actually. It's got a really good framing device. Very very Sorkin-esque in its uh, writing.
1: It's funny, because to my understanding, I did a lot of looking into this film, because I I actually saw this for those, you know, a couple of weeks back um, when Backlot, and I didn't know this, but Luna also had a collection of screenings for this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is something that we in Perth are just lucky. We get a lot of Netflix films... Getting small theatrical releases over here, mm-hmm. which is very rare and very great when it does happen. Uh, so I did a lot of research because, like, all right, well, I've seen the film twice now, so I want to get into this. Um, speaking of the cast, you were just mentioning a bit, pretty big, crazy cast. The film's budget overall, overall was 35 million when Paramount was producing the film. They were going to do an actual distribution. I think 11 million of that 35 actually went just to the cast, which wow, pretty crazy. That's nearly half the budget right there. And what happened is, obviously, when COVID happened and they did market research, and I'm not even joking, this is the market research that came out. They basically said, anyone in the US who would go to a movie theatre to watch this film, uh, probably people who do not believe in COVID, they believe in the conspiracy theorists, and those are not the people that this film is made for. <laughs> this is literally what Paramount said. So, with that, uh, they made a bidding offer and Netflix bought the film for $56 million. So, they made a cool, what is that, uh, $21 million from that deal and now it's Netflix's job to make that money back and I think they only got a hundred grand back from its limited uh, theatrical release but uh, I guess Netflix subscriptions are are plenty I suppose Um,
0: so we both seem to have responded to this film very positively I know you touched Mm. on it a little bit a couple weeks ago yep um, but you didn't go into too much detail, thankfully. All right. Today's the day, Z. Today is the day, my <laughs> friend. And, um, yeah, I also was met with a pretty positive reception to it also. Mm. Um, I think it was just slightly below what you were at. I think you were sitting on a four. I think I'm on a three and a half. Oh, so yeah. Still pretty streamlined, really pretty strong. This is met with some very positive, critical acclaim mm. and, Yeah, I can see why. It's a a really good film in terms of performances. It's got a really strong message, some really solid writing, Mm. and good pacing. I, like, didn't realise the Mm. film is over two hours long and it just zoomed by.
1: Yeah, I really... The structure of it, especially with, with, you know, Stan's stance with the the pacing, I just... I really liked it because, you know, between the two of us, we've seen a fair few courtroom films or courtroom dramas, legal dramas. I mean, again, Sorkin did... Uh, a few Good Men, and even The Social Network has a lot of legalese stuff. It's not in a courtroom, but there's a lot of that going on with lawyers speak and all of that jazz. So he's pretty renowned. But even just in terms of the usual structure for a courtroom drama, a lot of films tend to have the first half be the lead in. Mm-hmm. They lead into you know A Few Good Men. You don't really get into the courtroom till halfway for the film. Uh, the Killer Mockingbird. You know the first half of the film is the kid's perspective, and then we enter the courtroom and we see sort of the adult perspective on this. Um, and then every now and then you get challenged with, we did 12 angry men Mm -hmm. not long ago, but even that's different. That's all in one room, linear storytelling. This one breaks it where we're in the courtroom in the first 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. And we're sort of flashing back to events, but structurally I really enjoyed that. I was like, this is actually kind of fresh Mm. in that way.
0: Yeah. I really enjoyed sort of the, um, the correlative narrative between as the, the case is developing, so is the story leading mm. into the case in the first place, um, and it's a really interesting in terms of how they set up uh, characters, how they follow characters, how um, really the whole the whole point is is having this trial, but no. No one character feels like the main character. Like, if you told... If, if okay. you, um I don't know about you, mm. but I think the only real character... I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen's character is used occasionally as a framing device character through his stand-up routines. Yeah. And yet the film starts with Gordon Levitt's interaction into the case. We'll mm. um,
1: talk about that in a minute.
0: Okay, that interesting, uh, but yeah, and um, I just feel like it's uh, and I find that there are there are bits here with um, Mark Rylance who is playing the uh, the defense
1: attorney. Yes. I freaking love him in this film.
0: He and I, he's so good. Uh, had in to this look film. up because uh, that was my thing. He, to me, he was a bit of an anomaly. Like I'm like looking as, at him as I'm the like, actor. Okay, yes, of course. Um, I couldn't tell you where I had seen him before, and looking at his uh, uh what he's acted in most of these films I do not not recognise apparently he's in Dunkirk I think I'd remember who he is in Dunkirk if I think about it now I
1: don't remember anyone is in Dunkirk he's in, the in dude he's the old
0: guy on the boat I'm pretty sure <laughs> there's a lot of old guys on boats no the, the, the one the, yes yeah the ones in the, the civilian people I'm pretty sure
1: right well yeah. ironically he's in Ready Player One which I only watched a couple of weeks back
0: and yet you can't pick up where he is probably
1: yeah. not I mean yeah I'm looking at his filmography now you're right he's sort of in a lot of I want to say random kooky stuff, but you know, he—he's not an Avenger, for example.
0: No, <laughs> and I think that's my—that's what I found intriguing too. But he is—he is he is a, he is really a silent hit in this film. He is mm. easily one of the strongest parts of it. Um, between him and Cohen, I honestly think this is the best thing and Baron Cohen's ever been in. Well, I think his
1: casting of- is just brilliant because the character that he plays is so much like him, mm. like the real life sort of persona. In terms of being a political satire goofy guy, that's what he's playing. That's who he is in real but life. But he has
0: an under an undertone of intellect, which I actually mm. think is why I think this is probably I I honestly do think this is his best film from an acting point of view. Right. Now because he's naturally a comedy actor, and I am a sucker for seeing a, a, a pigeonholed comedy actor mm. push out into something. And technically, at least in this film, he has a little bit more of a bridge because he does have that stand up comedy sort of routine. He, he's a yeah, bit of a. Yeah. He kind of pokes fun at things. But in this film, especially, particularly in the latter parts of the film, which I'm sure we'll talk about, we see what's under the surface of that. We see the more serious side. Yeah. Well, like you said, the, side. the
1: intellectual side starts to bubble up more as as the tension rises. Yeah,
0: particularly as Eddie Redmayne's character is called more into question, mm-hmm. who is meant to be the one that's uh, not the provoker of violence and the, he's meant to be the more logical, grounded one. And um, we'll talk a little bit about what happens to that later in the film. Yeah. But I really, I honestly think this is the best thing I've seen him in. Like, I couldn't think of another film that I... And I, I'm not a big fan of his comedy stuff. Um You don't know, like Bruno? <laughs> no, I've I have not seen Bruno Norborat, but even I've seen The Dictator and I've seen Ah uh,
1: yeah. I think I've seen Dictator too, actually now. Yeah. That. I not There's a,
0: like a nine eleven joke a, a helicopter. Yeah, not a fan of that sort of uh humor. Now I know um, some people really like it, but and I saw him in the the uh Talladega Nights too. Uh, he's in that too um, right, and yeah, I yeah. I think he's... Some people really like him. Some people don't. But I think for me, from an acting point of view, this was a really strong performance by him. But yes, Mark Rylance too, was, he was pretty incredible. But I honestly, like I said, I don't know if I could pin directly a main character because I think everyone in terms of the Chicago 7 gets a moment in this film, which yeah, is great. Yeah,
1: I, I agree with that. And even like if you went to look at like the billing, it's a little weird because the film's credits sort of in a weird order compared to like what Wikipedia would tell you mm-hmm. or IMDB my feeling especially watching it a second time I feel like Tom Hayden would be the the protagonist if he had to pick one because he's really the only one I mean you said he's sort of called into question throughout the film mm. especially towards the end when you're like well did he really incite all this violence and do all these things but especially the fact that the very and we won't talk about the last scene just yet but i think what he does in the last scene is that okay he's he's got a character arc he's yeah. he's a change he starts the film you know he, he he is an activist but he wants to play to the court he's the guy who gets the haircut for the judge yeah and he's the guy that wants to play it cool and makes fun of everyone else because like, i'm the only one here dressed like a normal person and we see towards the end of the film it's like okay well he's the one that undergoes change compared from that attitude So if I had to argue, and I get what Mm. you mean.
0: But you could argue to an extent that 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 could be through Levitt, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's sort of side too. Um, That's true. But I think you are correct. If if we had to pinpoint a protagonist or someone who undergoes a proper journey with change, then Hayden would definitely be the one. But I do think even extents, I think, uh, Sachin Baron Cohen's character of uh, Abby. Abby... Abby is also undergoes uh, similar slight, uh, slight changes and variations mm-hmm. in his demeanor. The fact that he's the one who's willing to become the responsible one towards the end and go take the stand and say his right, yeah, have his moment of division. I think everyone gets a moment to shine in this film. Yeah, I think. Sure. I mean, you like we were talking about with Mark Rylance as uh, uh, William. Oh uh, uh, yeah, uh, Kunstler.
1: Um, cause I always thought they were calling him counselor. I was like, Oh, his name is literally just William counselor.
0: Um, I think his character gets moments in it too, where he goes mm-hmm. from playing a little bit more chill to really taking that activist stand. Yeah. Um, towards, I think there's a lot of that sort of, um, what this sister, what these people are trying to do is they're trying to be activists, uh, but working with the system. And I think a lot of them crack over the course of the case. Um, Right.
1: Well, it's just, it's so frustrating. Yeah. No matter what they do, they're just ignored. And I think um, that's all very intentional. I mean, even like having, um, Julius Hoffman, or the, the, the judge, he's a caricature. He is so unlikable. Mm -hmm. And even like, you know, with the last shot, him just like banging his gavel, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Like in his comedic way, it's like, he that character was created just to piss the audience off. So I think from that standpoint, it's like, yeah, you can see why everyone sort of cracks. They're not, they're not cracking under their own value system. They're cracking because it's like, what's the point? Yes. We're fighting against this impossible thing to take down.
0: Yeah. And I think it really, it really helps be, make the activists so empathetic, mm. um, to the cause and the fact that they're not uh, relying on underhanded tactics. And uh, even when they do kind of conform a little bit and try some of those behind the back sort of particularly with Keaton's character mm. tactics, that more guerrilla warfare sort of style, it still gets turned down eventually. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really interesting because it makes from the get go, I feel like you're rooting for this group. Yeah. Um, even though within the group, there's a lot of tension, um, but they're all striving for the same result. They all just have slightly different methodologies. Yeah. Which,
1: which is the whole thing is, is the court trying to prove that they are the same group of people and that this is all premeditated. And they're like, most of us don't know each other. Yeah. Most of us only met because of this court case. And then it comes <laughs> back to the
0: whole, I mean, that's the definition of a democracy, isn't it? Mm. And sort of all these people have want to achieve the same result and this was sort of the confusion that was created with the Vietnam war and this this just incant so many different voices saying so many different things but mm. wanting the same things and wanting change and um the big ethical debate that um Abby and and Tom have towards the end of it about going about the same form of change yeah. but one of them looking that thinking politics the answer while the other one Thinks politics is the reason why half this stuff happens, and it's a really interesting ethical debate with both having rights and extreme wrongs too. Well,
1: those, those are great scenes. You're right when they're arguing about sort of is it worth being a part of the system that votes in someone new, or do we need to do something completely different? I love those arguments. And yeah,
0: I think that's where this. I think this is where that film shines the most. But what Sorkin has really achieved with this film, which I quite like, is he allows those moments those sporadic bursts of just dialogue mm. he allows them to then follow up with the breathing where we have the moments of pure uncomfortable silences yeah like in that scene where um bobby seal is bound mm. and and gagged, gagged yeah and everyone is sitting in this uncomfortably silent courtroom while they're hearing in the background in the slight distance this Man being tied up. And and what was so fascinating about the scene was... <laughs> it was
1: more effective to me than any of the riot scenes. Because I, I want to get too much into this, but the, the person that I saw this movie with in the theatre um, basically had to leave multiple times mm. because of the riot scenes and what was being depicted there. Um, and my thing was more like the Bobby Seal stuff was way more effective to me, even though they show less... And they cut away from it, and it's all about in the silences. You're right.
0: Yeah, so it was very but, he, yeah, but that's what I love: his bursts of of uh, frenetic and and um, frantic dialogue that are just back and forth mm. ruthlessly are allowed to be contrast with these moments of silence that say just as much as those those outbursts. Where, yeah. um, and I like I would like I would like them probably. I prob like I would have to say some of my favorite parts of this film are the the back and forth dialogue stuff but i think that's an attribute to his uh his ability to write very compelling and like you said ca- i think caricature characters are what he does the best because mm. um i think most of these characters could be most of these people could be attributed to a form of caricature i mean it comes back to how abby's doing a stand up routine and he's in a full american jumpsuit right. like um, well, you see, I think in this form of irony, justice that he's trying to like talk when he's talking about this yeah. trial.
1: Well, the side that he's always joking, he's he's making a joke out of it. But I I never saw them as a caricature, and and I don't think between any of Aaron Sorkin's films, I don't think I consider anyone a caricature. I think it's really just the judge, because he is. When you think about it, he really has no redeeming quality at all. And even Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, we still get a scene right at the beginning of the film, to tell us, okay, well, he's idealistically conflicted as well. So even when we see him fighting for his life in court, there's still mm-hmm. that part of our brain like, well, he doesn't completely believe in what he's saying. So there's depth to... But he's also willing to
0: do the job. Yeah, yeah. And there's that that discussion at the end that he feels... I think even he has a different way. At the end of the day, I think this film is a collection of how people, different people perceive democracy, which inherently right. is a very socially socially relevant film, particularly with the, the current democratic state of America. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think it's really interesting that you brought up the whole, how this film was going to be in cinemas and now has moved mm. to Netflix because it leads to really this film is calling into the problem, the inherent problems with America that, you know, the corporate and the government legislation, it's it's not changed. I mean, people that have the right to protest are still told that they can't do it. And often protests do break down into violent mm. demonstrations and it's become why a little too relevant to the current geopolitical yes. climate in America <laughs> that this film has come out at the same time.
1: I'm glad um, you brought it up because I think part of my my immediate reaction walking out of the film, the first time when I told you about it, you know, on that episode a couple of weeks ago, mm. I was really high on this film and I think that was part of it. I had to put that part of my brain mm. of, it's just so shockingly relevant to that. And they shot this film last October. Yeah. So even though there was an aim for, you know, Aaron Sorkin, and I actually did a bit of research, Actually, Spielberg had a lot of commentary on this film as well. Mm-hmm. He was the one that convinced Sorkin to bring the script back into production in the last couple of years, uh, specifically to get it out before this next election. Mm-hmm. So there was an aim to equate it to today, but they couldn't have possibly guessed... With the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's happened there, like they couldn't um, have possibly predicted it no. to be this relevant. So it's yeah. kind of shocking.
0: Yeah, and sometimes films just come in at the exact time that they're required. Mm. Um, and I think that that's that's really interesting. There are there are scenes and sequences in this film that are uh, haunting in their representations, especially correlative because of how they are so close to problems that are being faced in the same, you know, in, yep. in, in, in America and other countries around the world, Western countries around the world. Um, and I think that that's kind of the interesting part that this film is really trying to show that there's no one way to do democracy. Um, there no. are, um, yeah. and that it's not as, um, but there is only one, a certain way to go about being inherently a good person and doing the, you know, you know, there's only one represent, there's really only one way to be humane, I guess, Mm. or have a representation of what actually humanity is. And it's not a political system or motivated by, you know, political agenda. It's just trying, you know, trying to be inherently the right person and, I think that comes, I think that's really ironed home, particularly in in what Eddie Redmayne does towards the end, Mm. where it becomes very apparent that these people are just striving to express humanity and express that at the end of the day, what this, uh, what they're activists for Mm. is a humanity movement, not a political movement.
1: Yeah. Well, I think this is a frustrating thing because, like, I've seen a lot of reviews and, like, on Letterboxd and not like reviewers, like critics, but people who watched it and there's a lot of you know oh it's leftist propaganda ah oh, sorkin pushing his leftist agenda and all that stuff and i i think you hit the nail on the head where it's like it doesn't have to be that political it's simply you can label these people mm-hmm. the radical left and that's what they do in the beginning of the film of you know oh, the black panthers and the yippies and the you know the student democracy party and all that it's like oh they're all the same people but you're right. It's it's just a humane right for human freedom. They don't want to be drafted into wars anymore. They want to have a stronger say no. in their freedom.
0: In particular, like, biggest problems with with that sort of time were mm. the fact that the people going to war were the people of lower socioeconomic standards. Um, and that becomes very apparent in a, in a ladder scene where they're juxtaposing the rich people sitting on the inside of the window oh, yeah. and... The, What's the area? The reality of the fifties compared to the the actual reality of the sixties on the other yeah. side, and I think that that was one of the most powerful scenes in the film because it's it basically is surmising that their movement was more out of the fact that yeah they didn't want to be drafted to war. It's not a politically motivated situation. It's a conscription is a an archaic and frankly barbaric way of uh, enlisting people into mm. a war. And it's there's a reason why the Vietnam War was the last legal version of, of conscription, you know. If you if you wanna get really into it that nitty mm-hmm. gritty you would argue that conscription hasn't died, it's just kind of shifted its marketing strategy basically but <laughs> hey um, school kids and
1: girls or boys and girls yeah but What's from around? a Get frank yeah.
0: point of view then technically from a legal standpoint yes conscription has as has died because of that war and because of the you know the huge activist movements but yeah i think that this film isn't it's trying to actually, you know, it acknowledges its political stuff on the surface, but at the end, it does come back to no. This was just, this is just people trying to show what democracy is, and mm. it. I think it's it is really brought home in that last sequence, not by what Redmayne's doing, but what Gordon Levitt does. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, let,
1: let's yeah, let's talk about because I mentioned it earlier that. At the start of the film, we get that little nugget, and I know this is something that Sorkin kind of did in in A Few Good Men as well, Mm -hmm. with uh, Galloway's character, where if you want to humanize a suit or a character of authority, you give them a scene where they either get to be themselves or express that conflict of interest. In the the case of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Mm -hmm. you have him sort of arguing his point of view, where he's like, oh, well, I think these things about these radical left, but they're not illegal i can't indict them for those things and then the response is well then i'll be pretty impressed if you can indict them for those things that's what you have to do and then they even pay that off a little bit when he's talking directly to the yippies when they sort of bump into each other in the the middle of the road but you're right it all it all sort of amounts to he ultimately pays respect to the fallen and that's his final act in the film Mm -hmm. by standing up and yeah I, i can see what you mean where that that's you take away the political angle of it and just put down the. This is a humane angle. Yeah. Look how many people have died while we're all wasting and our time it's on also this trial. His,
0: it's also his notion to have um, steel after uh, Bobby Seal after he's mm. uh, gagged and, and tied up to have him mistrialed. And, yeah. Um, because That's a good point. Yeah. Because he's, he's the
1: one that steps one and says, let's make this a mistrial. Mm-hmm. It's a good point.
0: And obviously that's met with, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to double check this one. Um, uh, yeah. Like Koontzler's, um, response being like, well, that would just help their case more, wouldn't it now? Because we're forgetting all of the bad things that they're doing between this, this trial. Yeah. Because every time it feels like, uh, you know, the defendants have a, you know, a actual case, the stuff either gets thrown out, like the jurors getting thrown out or, yeah. or such and all the and entire this...
1: cross-examination is stripped from the record yeah and stuff like that just like shocks me when i see that like i, I feel like i know a little bit about how courtrooms work and all of that and i'm just like how can you like i get the objection to staying overall i get that mm-hmm. where it's like individual questions but entire i don't know but again it's all in service of oh this trial was so frustrating i can't believe this is how yeah. It was back in the day, and it still kind of is. So Yeah. yeah.
0: And I, I think that, that that's what it comes back to, is it's like he may not agree with the methodology, but, yes, it doesn't currently mm. come back to a human trait, not a politically motivated trait. He's, he's a I mean, at the end of the day, Gordon Levitt is actually the representation of, if you need to get, like you said, leftist propaganda, yep. he's actually the representation of the right. He's wealthy. Yeah. He's accomplished work person. He's, well, he's a
1: victim of the government as well. Yes. So,
0: I mean, he's still, I guess you could argue, right.
1: Well, he's yeah. hand-picked, but he yes. also doesn't yes. turn
0: it down. So he's actually... I wouldn't call him a victim of the government. I think he's just doing, he's doing his service to mm. his country and because he's wealthy and allowed to have that sort of... He is the representation of the right. So his actions throughout the film, the ones that aren't related to his job, mm. the times where he shows his humanity, is essentially calling into the fact that he from a political standpoint, he foregoes that political motivation in service of being a human, which is, I, what I think is at the core of this film. It's about doing what's right for the, and protecting people. because mm. People were getting hurt. People were getting, you know, killed, killed yeah. and, um, not political and the political motivation. And it comes back to, there's a, I, like, like, this tribalistic sort of mindset where it's like, Oh, if it's left or it's right, it's, you know, it's right or it's wrong. And it's like, no, that's not how political motivation works. I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to be people. We're all living in a democracy. So that, that right to being free and trying to do the right thing and to look after one another, mm. there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And I think that this film is, that's what this film is trying to talk about. It's not trying to be any form of propaganda or anything and it's a shame that some people can't look past that yeah there always has to be a right and wrong answer and i don't think there isn't always so just people
1: for genders and yeah you know points to prove i guess and i don't it's, think it's, I, yeah. if you,
0: I mean you know the the portrayal of um of the hippie characters and of, of cohen and more in particular um jeremy strong's jerry rubin hmm. Ruben's a nice guy and he's often well-spoken, but he's also an, like he's a stoner and he's kind of right. stupid and he falls in love with an FBI informant after uh, less than 24 <laughs> hours.
1: I mean, I would too, to be honest.
0: But so they're not, they don't get off scot-free. They're not these, they're not, they're not all perfect people.
1: No. Well, I mean, especially with Eddie Redmayne's character, Tom Hayden. I mean, you see that and that that's part of the shifting perspective of this film is, you know, he seems like the guy. is like he's trying his best to be the most representable of them, but then you could argue he kind of did incite a riot at the end. Yeah. That last riot, especially, yeah.
0: And I think it's a little bit of a it's a bit of a um cop out that it's the way he said it was wrong, and that they all like he tries to rationalize it. it's the way he's yeah. he announced it wrong. Well, he but, he
1: has I don't want to say anger issues, but like he gets riled up. He yeah. gets riled up then. He gets riled up during the pretend cross examination when they play the tape. Mm-hmm. Like, it gets riled up over these things.
0: Yeah. I mean, they all do. I mean, even Carol mm-hmm. Lynch, who's a conscientious oh, uh, objector, objector... So good. ...conforms to violence. Yeah. Um, so, I think, with the exception of people like Ronnie Davis, who was played by Alex Sharp, there are few people... And it comes back to um, after what happens to um Seal, Bobby Seal. Yeah. Um, there's a note passed around by him to Redmayne yes. and the rest of the crew not to stand up for the judge and yet Red Main is the only one that stands up for the judge.
1: The first time I saw the film I thought that he just, like, ignored it because he was, like, paying attention to what was happening in front of him mm-hmm. but then the second time I was like, no, he totally read that note. Yeah. He just... I mean, I get, he, I'm I sure it was a reflex. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I was like, oh, he did, that bastard. <laughs> yeah. He's the first one to read it. Yeah, he is. He is too. Uh, well... Look, like you brought up um, Bobby Seale, and I, I've I've read some people who weren't as big of a fan of this film, and one of the reasons was, you know, with considering the Black Lives Matter movement, that, that Bobby Seale, his sort of arc just kind of ends in a very anticlimactic or a very uncinematic way, where he just sort of exits the film, and he, and he's brought up in the text at the end mm-hmm. that he was found innocent of the murder in Connecticut, but my. Look, I don't want to, like, go against it. First off, the film was obviously shot before the Black Lives mm. Matter movement, so it was clearly more about the political angle than it was the Black Panther I mean, this was called
0: The Trial of the Chicago 7.
1: Here's the thing. So this is what I was going to mention earlier, okay. is So every other... This has been done to death, this story. Okay. Like, there's several films and documentaries and stuff. I'm going to read the titles of some of these. The 1987 TV drama is called Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago 8. The animated doco that was made, I think... In two thousand seven, two thousand eight, what is called Chicago Ten, and the twenty ten film is called Chicago Eight. This is the first version of this story where they call it the Chicago Seven. Bobby Seale isn't a part of that seven; he mm. is the
0: eighth. And the ten would probably include the two lawyers, right?
1: I guess so. Yeah, I didn't check on that, but um, I would
0: assume that that would be logically that would make sense. Wineglass yeah. and and uh, Koonsler. Yeah, yeah, would be the the would accumulate ten. But it's
1: interesting. I didn't realize. It's like everyone talks about the Chicago Eight. He mm. had nothing to do with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, not really. No. And maybe that's what this film is really trying to affirm: is the fact that he really did have nothing to do with it. And they just, yeah. put him... and I think that's pretty clearly obvious. I mean, it's a shame that. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, most of his screen time is basically him going, "I didn't do anything," and then people ignoring that basically. Yeah. Um,
1: it's a shame but you're right and I, I don't want to say that's the story I understand this isn't the most historically accurate version of this story but it sounds like the gist of it was yeah he was just innocent yeah and he got the mistrial and he left and,
0: was yeah. there comment like did you manage to find which ones um, were most correlatively correct
1: um, when I looked up so these other films Trial of Chicago 8 just Chicago 8 and then Chicago 7 it seemed like those used more accurate transcripts from the actual court case and I remember when I watched this I was like I wonder how accurate the wording is Mm -hmm. I know Sulkin does his own dialogue of course but how much of this is actual transcript and I actually found the what I think is the original transcript and what I realised is that a lot of the names are changed a lot of the defendants a lot of people come up to the stand just have different names Hmm. so it's like oh Frank such and such is a stand it's like well no one was named Frank who's in these transcripts so I think stuff like that is a little altered for that sake But um, I couldn't tell you which one of those is more accurate in this film, but my, my guess is that they all are. Yes. But um. Okay. it's fine, because this is an entertaining film. This is what it is. Yeah. It's entertaining and relevant and not too historically
0: accurate. I've never been too... You can't be too harsh on based on true stories. Stories, because... Mm. It's based.
1: The word is based. Based. Story.
0: Is what, if it said this is a true story yeah. and it's not, then you have a problem. Like, I mean, we've talked about it all the way back on like episode three with American Animals where Mm. they go, no, no, this is a true story. These are the people. That's an example of a true story playing out with a bit of dramatization and film. And that was that really good hybrid. But as soon as you say based, it could be, there are some incredibly loose bastes out Mm. there, like absurdly loose. Um, And at the end of the day, the iconography and the storytelling for Sorkin at the very least takes precedent. Yeah. Um, and this is
1: why people watch this film. In my yeah, m- most people, there was one person at when I watched it at Backlot who this is a weird thing. I've had a thing with people who are at least three times my age walking up and just chatting with me at movie theaters. <laughs> you, this just is, the, you just got that demeanor. <laughs> I know this is a thing lately, but someone walked up to me before the movie started and she just started talking about, like, oh, you know, do you know about this story? I'm like, no, not really, because I'm going in to watch an Aaron Sorkin film these people were clearly going in to watch this story that they knew about. They obviously watched in the news when they were much younger. And, you know, and she was telling me, like, oh, my God, what, what they did to the, you know, to Bobby Seale. And she was sort of explaining that to me before I saw it in the movie. And my thing is, like, okay, well, there are some people who are watching this to relive that story. Mm-hmm. But I think a vast majority of people were like, I want to watch this Aaron Sorkin film.
0: Well, at the end of it, I was—I uh, would argue mm. that because I mean, you've already brought up th- at least three different renditions of the same story, right? So, you want to go see something more real that's not a Sorkin film? Go see something more real. Yeah, it's out there. I mean, do, most of it's does, on YouTube. People watch the Social <laughs> Network and go, "That was beat for beat the exact same." as yeah, what exactly. happened? In you watch real it life? because
1: it's damn entertaining. That's why you
0: watch it. Yeah, that. and it's like, uh, I and yeah, exactly. It's damn entertaining. It's mm. like. And it's funny, yeah, because I would say social network never gets any sort of criticism like, oh, this is not realistically how everything happened. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, I mean, this film's not told chronologically either. So we're not looking for the... As soon as you start to disperse time and space and you change that, you're already affecting the grounds of this is becoming less real. Because things are only being revealed to the viewer when sorkin wants them to be revealed
1: exactly and and even like you said like time and space is manipulated each and every shot mm-hmm. every line of dialogue is recreating the story even if it's the exact line from the transcript the way it's said in like the tone it said like those mm-hmm. things are all changed that's why you're bringing actors to this and it's why you bring production designers to sort of re and this is something aaron sorkin did talk about is they specifically they wanted it to take place in, you know, the late sixties, but they wanted something about the costumes and the aesthetic to not be too sixties. They didn't want it to be too iconic to that time because they wanted a sense of the present in it. So it's like there isn't there is an active role in the creators of this film that are actively trying to make this less historically accurate. Than what you would call historically mm-hmm. accurate. So I feel like anyone who complains about, oh, it's not true, it's like it, every shot is changing history. Everything yes. about this film is changing history. And maybe Get that's what it. comes
0: <laughs> it back to trying to make it more a transcendent a transcend- se- um, text. Transcending. <laughs> transcending text. Yeah, tricky. Um, yeah, been a long week. Uh, <laughs> transcending text in order, uh, and that's what maybe helps it become such a correlative. Relevant text to now Mm. um, because of little things like making it more subtle in its costuming, exactly, yeah, and making it more apparent that you know the difference between then and now not is not as much as we think it is. Exactly, you know this this is not as foreign a time as you know as as to now, and particularly with everything that transpired in 2020, that's becoming very apparent. It's
1: terrifying. Yeah. I think Netflix... I think my understanding of, like, when they bidded the film what they sent it, like, Netflix, Amazon, all of these mm-hmm. distributors, and they basically said, all right, you've got 24 hours to watch this. And I think the thing that Netflix knew, and that's why there's been so much money to buy this film, to distribute it, is they knew the relevancy of it today, because mm-hmm. they would have watched this after the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. happened. Or during, even. Yeah, And they knew, we need to get this film out now. Mm-hmm. Because... No matter the quality of the film, and I think it's a well-made film for sure. Yeah, just the relevancy, the topics of it, is enough. Like people are going to watch this and talk about it. Yeah, and that's all Netflix need to justify their purchase. I've
0: had at least four people already today talk to me about really? it. Really? So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So that really goes to prove your point even more. Um. There yeah. You do you, would you like? Do you have anything else you had, or would you like I to move to highlight think, scenes? I think
1: we've torn this film apart quite enough, Zeke. Let's do some highlight scenes.
0: Yeah, for me, it's got to be that back and forth between Rylance and Gordon Levitt um, in about the and midpoint of the one? film. Um, in which they are having a back and forth. I think it's between uh, over the... um, Not the Keaton... I think it is the Keaton um, interaction. It's either that one or the... the yes, it's the Keaton one oh, Okay, where, When there's no jury and... No, it's the one in the courtroom in which, yeah. um, they are having. It's it's sort of when um, Keaton takes the stand, and it's yeah, very yeah, yeah. apparent That's, that yeah. he's about to sort of crack it all open. And Levitt gets out of his seat, and there ends up being this really <laughs> good two shot between Rylance and Levitt, and they're just going back and forth with each other. Yeah, yeah. On like the relevancy, and it, it's a lot of um, I can't and tell you it's a lot of legal jargon but the I best part about mean, this film about it. is you understand exactly what everyone's saying because yeah. there's been enough it's not just jargon that's going over your head because if you've watched the film and you've been attended to the film what they're saying you're getting and i love mm. that that's when sorkin's really at his best and then it just He's makes
1: utilizing it... sorry utilizing uh american politic talk yeah, because there's a lot of terms in American politics that we don't use everywhere, yeah. and uh, legalese. Like yeah, those are two things that he has to weave into common language and make it sound like his normal rhythmic dialogue that everyone has to understand watching the film. Yes, and so it's I think task.
0: that that scene in particular. There are other scenes with Rylance, like the scene where he's um, interrogating Redmain, and he's just that's a pushing, scene. punching into him. Um, that we really get to see what he's made of. I think for this, uh, I mean, out of like, obviously it's great to see Gordon Levitt and Redmayne and, and, but a lot of those other well-known actors have had at least proving grounds in some way or another. So it's Mm. really nice to see someone like, like Mark Rylance, who I would say for the most part, even in Dunkirk, which I now look back on and can remember him in it. He's still not the most prominent part of that film. Mm. So.
1: Well, that's a similar film in terms of its cast is quite a flat line hierarchy in a
0: way yeah and i think that it's really nice for him to have a platform where at times in the story he definitely feels actually even like the main character
1: Um, yeah i got i got that sense at times as well
0: because we have to there are certain parts of the story in which we can't get other characters and he's the one who has to go and do x y or z so Mm. um yeah no what about you jake
1: um well i i would say and this still is true my highlight scene has to be when they beat bobby seal uh, for all the reason I discussed earlier, just that it is so effective and using very simplistic tools with the filmmaking and cutting away from it. Um, but I do want to give a shout out because I haven't done so yet. The actual, the opening of the scene, a little prologue uh, before the title comes up that is a lot of archival footage being thrown at your mm-hmm. and a lot of exposition and introducing all these characters in quick succession. I thought it was excellent. It's it was a very good eight-minute so eight opening. Eight minutes, you counted
0: it? Mm. I, I counted it when it hit the side. I was like... Nice. It was like, I think it's seven and a half to eight. It's roughly around that time. That's
1: great. It flies by, but it's like, in, in terms of delivering the important information, because there's a lot of political background context and learning who these characters are and which groups they represent, I thought it was just so brilliantly edited and, mm. and, and
0: directed and just... I like the integration of archival footage throughout the film.
1: Yeah, well, apparently that was a budget thing as well. Because they only had $35 thirty-five million, twenty-four. If you get rid of the cast budget, mm-hmm. um, that apparently a lot of that was to add archival footage to make it seem bigger than it was. Because the actual production of it, it was shot in like a month. Okay. So uh, this is a huge win because this film does not look like it only cost thirty million to make.
0: No. No, it's very crisp. Yeah. Big win. No worries. Well, the trial of the Chicago Seven is currently out on Netflix and probably in some cinemas. I'm guessing sporadically. Um.
1: Maybe. I don't think so anymore. No.
0: Well, I'm I don't for- know what their plan is. It's interesting with how Netflix handles the cinema stuff nowadays. If they wanted to, I guess it's had its two-week run, so it's probably eligible for Oscars.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's always the goal. And I know I know Mank is one that we're getting in cinemas next month that's in Netflix December. And, and I'll, I can't remember what it's called, Hillbilly it's Hillbilly summer, but it's a Ron Howard film with Amy Adams. And that's oh. also a Netflix film that's going to get a little theatrical release
0: coming up. No worries. Yeah. Well, speaking of what's coming up, Jake, what's new in cinemas and streaming platforms? Cheeky. Coming to stand this week, you have Blowout, this is Spinal Tap,
1: and a bunch of Hitchcock films. So, Psycho, The Birds, and Rear Window. Those are all coming to stand. And I've only, out of those three, I've only seen Psycho, so I'm keen.
0: Maybe you'll give some of the others a geese.
1: There you go. Uh, Coming to Netflix this week is Over the Moon, which is an American-Chinese animated film, which sees an adventurous girl build a rocket ship to meet a mythical goddess on the moon.
0: Mm. Sounds like my Sunday.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't know.
1: <laughs> oh, you got me good. Uh, classics in cinemas. The Matrix Trilogy is playing at Hoyts this week, which is funny because we watched The Matrix in the cinemas. 25th anniversary. Yeah, just last year. So they're playing all three now. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's worth me seeing the whole trilogy in cin-
0: Nope, nope. I've never seen the other two, but I, um, I from what I hear... Um, not worth it. Yes, I think it uh, crescendos. But, you know what? If you've got nothing better to do... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, probably don't.
1: <laughs> uh, coming to Luna on Sunday, the 25th of October, so this next coming October, mm-hmm. there's a double screening of, we talked about this earlier, When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle. So there's a bit of a Meg Ryan sort of double feature thing going on there Uh, and the following day so Monday the 26th a double screening of Blue Velvet and Fargo interesting films to put together Mm -hmm. Uh, and coming to cinemas there's not a lot this week Uh, Baby Dunn sees a wannabe adventurer played by Rose Matafio freaking out over her newfound pregnancy with her long term boyfriend played by Matthew Lewis and as the two or as he embraces the prospect of fatherhood she attempts to rush through her dreams so the trailer for this, it seems okay. It seems like a Netflix's comedy. What? That's
0: all you want to be told. You're perfectly adequate. <laughs>
1: I, I just wish someone would tell me that one time. Oof. <laughs> and, and finally, uh Kajillionaire is directed by Miranda Jule, uh Men, the, sorry. Miranda July and sees a woman's life turned upside down when her criminal parents invite an outsider to join them in a major heist that they're planning and uh intriguing yeah, seems good I think mean, people it's an indie darling
0: there we go well none of those are watching next week on the show but Jake what are we watching
1: well Zeke we're entering the spooky season mm-hmm. I think it's time we finally do a a Halloween related oh, episode really yeah I think the perfect film to start is with Halloween Michael, Halloween.
0: I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realised that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil.
1: From the mind of John Carpenter, 15 years after murdering his sister on Halloween night, 1963, Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital and returns to the small town of Haydenville in Illinois to kill again. Which is funny, because we were just in Illinois for Chicago.
0: That we were. Ah. Very intriguing. I've never seen this film before. Really? Yes. Yes, uh,
1: Interesting. We've seen the, re- the, the sequel remake thing. Whatever you want to call it. Together. The
0: Danny McBride spiritual sequel. I think it's just a sequel. It's a direct sequel. All the others aren't canon, except... this one and that one well those are the only
1: two I've seen and it makes sense yeah makes sense and I'm gonna be honest I like that one way more than I like this 1978
0: Halloween intriguing well I'll be I will wonder if I'll be on the same page with you I've seen a couple of carpenters I might try and couple more during Mm. the week but until then thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast (laughs) I was Zeke I was Jake and we'll catch you next week with Halloween (laughs)